I appreciate his singing. It's, um, it's not always easy to get up and do that anymore for him, obviously. And um, I appreciate his testimony in that way. And kind of leads into something I was thinking this morning when we were singing our hymns. This hymnal, unlike a few others that I've seen, has the dates, and I've mentioned this before, that, that the authors and arrangers, uh, composers lived, which I find very intriguing sometimes. As you obviously know, I'm a big fan of, of hymns. I think they serve multiple, many importances, but notice we sang two this morning. Um, the last one was When the Morning um, Comes, and you'll notice that the author, Charles Tindley, lived... 1851 to 1933, not exactly the easiest of times, yet he was able to say by and by when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we will tell the story of how we've overcome, we will understand it better by and by. But even more interesting to me was the other one, Francis Rowley lived 1854 to 1952. It's a very long time. You think he is a very young man, saw the Civil War, World War I, Great Depression, and World War II. All the way from riding horses everywhere to airplanes and atomic bombs. And despite all of that, he was still able to say, yes, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. See, these are men who, although I don't know them, based on their words, seem to understand exactly what they were singing about. That regardless of the trials that we think we're going through in our current country, in our current state, we can sing the wondrous story and ultimately understand it better by and by. And I think those are encouraging words to us and should be listed among the many reasons that we sing hymns to remember that many people have gone before us and many times much worse than what we think we're dealing with. And they found solace and help in the Lord, and the same is true today. And so now, having read a few hymns that are 100 years old, let us turn to something that is thousands of years old, that has stood the test of time, that as much as I love the hymns is far better, and that would be the Word of God. We'll be in 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3. Near the end of the New Testament, if you can find Revelation, go back a few books to the left and you'll find 1 Peter. We've done studies on this before on Sunday nights, kind of in a series, but I want to pick on a specific verse today that I think will helpfully give us some guidance for how we are to live our lives. I titled the sermon today, Are You Ready? I think that's kind of the thrust of what we're going to be looking at today, is that question of, are you ready? So 1 Peter 3, if you found your way there, I want to read, starting with verse 10 through 17. 1 Peter 3, beginning with verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good, Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, 
and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteous sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for doing for well-doing than for evil-doing. You see, this passage gives good instruction to those of us who are here today. It is just as true today as it was thousands of years ago when the Lord inspired it to be written. We see here that there is a setting where there's some concern about doing good and people who are surrounding believers and calling them out or giving them a hard time. Many times we can romanticize the past. It's very easy to do. I uh, do that as well. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I'll just keep mentioning it, not only so that I remember that maybe you will as well. Amy's grandfather passed away um, a year ago, almost this week or thereabouts. And he was getting close to 100 years. And I remember several years back, I asked him, I said, Leon, if you could go back at any point in time and live, what would it be? And without missing a beat, he looked at me and said, well, right now. And I always found that so peculiar. But when you grow up during the Depression and get drafted at 18 to go fight a world war and walk from the beaches of Normandy all the way to the other side of Germany, maybe your perspective changes a little bit. But you see, he understood that we can't go back in time and romanticize about the way things used to be because sometimes the old ways weren't that good. Sometimes they were. But what I want to remind us all is that we can think, well, boy, it would be great to be like the first church back in the founding. Well, listen, the first church had a lot of problems. They were dealing with a lot of oppression. A lot of things were going on. And in many ways today, in the current time that we stand, even though, as I've also said before, I think someday they'll grab a hold of my recordings in the past and put me on trial. But as it stands right now, that is not the case. And we have the freedom to stand before you today and to profess Jesus Christ is God and preach his word. And so we are not yet at a point where we are dealing with this, but make no mistake, for thousands of years, those who followed after God have been put to the test. And the instruction that is being given here is that we are to live a life as an example, that we are to continue to do what is good and to do what is right, no matter what anybody is putting before us, no matter what they're saying about us or saying to us, we are to instead stand firm in the gospel that Jesus Christ has given us in the good news and do the right thing no matter what. Because as we read this morning in the hymn, we'll all understand it better by and by. But I want to focus today on just one verse, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And you'll see where I tied in together a little bit of the sermon we had this morning for the children. So let's talk about this for just a minute. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. To sanctify means to, um, to recognize 
both in word and in deed, that he is holy and treat him as such. To sanctify something, you're setting it apart. You're saying it is different than me. We are very much an I and a we and a me uh, society. And we very rarely want to give in to the fact that God is rightfully so above us. He is not like us in the sense that we are uh, fallen and full of sin and limited in knowledge and ability. He is, in fact, God. And to understand that is something that will help us to put ourselves in proper place with him. We are not God. But all too often we try to make ourselves like God. And to sanctify the Lord, we're not making him special or holy. He already is. No, instead, we are doing that internally, as in we have the right image and view of God inside of us. Now, this is more than just an intellectual ascent. For many, many years, people have uh, had creeds or they've had memberships in different churches. And they say, well, I believe this and I believe this. When we talk about sanctifying the Lord in our hearts, we are talking about doing something that is personal, that is experiential, that is knowledge about God and God alone. It is not just me saying, well, I believe in God. It is me actually believing the Savior of my soul in my innermost being who He is. You also understand that the way that this is written, it implies something that's continuous. This isn't something that you did once and never returned to. No, it is something that you are continuously doing. You are to always be sanctifying God inside of your hearts all the time. It's also something that is done internally. I want to draw this distinction for a minute. You'll notice it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It doesn't say with And it doesn't say from, it says in. That means that our relationship with our almighty God is a personal one that is between us and our deeper, deepest innermost self, our heart, if you will, and him. It's not about our external works for him. It's not about what I can do for him. It's about my relationship and love for him through my heart. It is the indwelling, once we are saved, of the Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside of us. We must sanctify Him in our hearts, not out of it or for it. Now, those are good things, but we must start with the internal. We must always esteem God as holy. This is a heart matter first and an external matter second. And again, we get that confused many times. We try and act good because we know we need a change internally, and it never works that way. You can never act good enough to change your heart. You can only be submissive and seek God, put Him first, sanctify Him in your heart, and then what comes out of your heart is good things. It doesn't work the other way around. That's why the first order here is, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And it goes on, it says, And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. What does it mean to always be ready to give an answer? Always. Always be ready. It doesn't mean we always have to. Does that make sense? We have to be ready. 
And in fact, if you search the scriptures, you'll see there are numerous occasions, and in fact, Jesus Christ himself did this on numerous occasions, where he could have given more of a defense, but he chose to be what? To be silent. Does that mean he wasn't ready? Oh no, he was ready, but he chose to be silent. It doesn't mean that we have to, 24 hours a day, always be walking around uh, preaching to people, although if you're called to do that, it's not a bad thing. But understand that you must be ready at any given moment when someone inquires to give a defense, to explain what you believe and why you have hope. You must be ready to give an answer. Now that answer, that word, and you'll see where well, some of this kind of comes together in my, in my thinking, both this morning with the children and both with the book study we're getting ready to go into. That word answer is the Greek word apologia which sounds like apology in English, but it doesn't mean the same thing. In English, to say I apologize for something means I'm going to, well, apologize or make an excuse or um, confess to something that I did. But an apology in this context is talking about giving a defense. It means that you're not apologizing as I'm sorry that happened. No, you're standing up for what exactly you did. And so the book that we're going to read over the next couple of weeks is talking about someone who is giving a defense or an apology, a defense of the Christian faith. Of course, he started out trying to disprove the Christian faith and came to meet the Lord and changed his mind. And so what this is telling us is we must be ready, whether or not we're always doing it, but we must be ready to give a defense of what we believe and the hope that is inside of us. Now, there's two ways that we can give a defense, and I'll be honest with you, until I began studying this one, I only thought about it this first way. I thought about it through words. I always took this from a very young man, even till, I guess this week, to think to myself, well, that means that I must be ready to defend my faith verbally or in writing. And it does mean that, so don't think it doesn't. And that's a very important question. Here's a question for you. Can you defend what you believe based on doctrine? It's a good question. You must be able to. You should be able to. Now that varies according to how long you've been a Christian and believer. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he says that you are still consuming milk like a young child, but you need to be start eating the solid foods or the meat that is the more difficult things. If you've only recently been saved a year or two ago, it doesn't make sense necessarily that you can sit down and, and, and explain everything for someone satisfactorily. But at some point in your life, if you've been saved 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you absolutely should be able to verbally and written give a defense an apology for the hope that is inside of you. That means you might be able to give proofs or logical explanations for why this must be true. But at the very minimum, you know what it means? You must be able to share your testimony. That means you must be able to explain to someone, listen, there was a point in my life when I was lost and separated from God, that he came and showed me that I was lost and separated, and that I put my faith in him, I confessed my sins before him, he gave me a peace that I can't explain, he set me on my feet, made me a new creature, and I've never been the same again. You must be able to, at a minimum, give your testimony as a defense to those who want to know. You should strive to be able to give some doctrine as well. You should strive to be able to give some verses, even if you don't quote them quite right, even if you may not be able to call the chapter and the verse that they're in. For those of you who follow 
and know scripture. You'll hear I try to do this a lot in my teaching. I may not call the exact verse. It may not be exactly right, but I'm trying to incorporate the scripture into what I say, into what I do, into what I believe. You might also be surprised as you go out into society when you start quoting scripture, how many people will go, I recognize that. It's still there. So yes, we must be ready to give an answer or to give a defense in our words and in our writing. But the other way that we should give uh, a defense is in our actions. It's in our actions. Uh, go back uh, one page or so, 1 Peter 2, 12. 1 Peter 2, 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of his visitation. What this verse is telling us, and the other way that we can always be ready to give a defense or an answer to the things that we believe, is not only just based on what we say, but how we actually live. That means our lives should be a reflection of Jesus Christ so that people see us and see that there's something peculiar, as the scripture says, or different about us. And that in and of itself can be enough. Ever thought about that? Have you had points in your life when just simply standing for the right thing without any need for explanation is enough for people to know? Have you witnessed other people do that in challenging and difficult times to say, I'm not going to engage with this? They may not, you may not have to give them a lecture over why, but just simply refraining from it is very important. I'll give you one kind of uh, silly example. Um, years ago, when I was new to marriage and um, was with a, a group of guys who were continuously, uh, kind of in a joking way, kind of bad mouthing their wife. Call ball and chain, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Nothing really bad. Um, I don't think they really meant it in that way. But, you know, I, I joined in a couple of times, and then I thought, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. I don't feel this way. This isn't really how I feel about my wife. And so I quit doing it. Did I pull them aside and tell them how I thought it was disrespectful and how the Lord requires better language? No. I just told them, listen, I don't feel that way about my wife. I'm not going to do that. Do you know what happened? I quit, and eventually they did too. That's a good thing. That's being the example that God wants you to be in speech. I didn't give him a big lecture. I didn't have to. I just said, I don't really feel that way about my wife. And I quit. We underestimate sometimes the impact that we can have, not by necessarily having to defend or give a logical proof or call chapter and verse, but to simply by our actions live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ to do the things we are supposed to do and to refrain from doing the things that we are not supposed to do and having the wisdom to know where sometimes that line is drawn in between. And so if we want to sanctify the Lord in our hearts and be ready to always give an answer, part of that is not just our words, but our actions. And so one of the questions that I have for you today is, do your actions serve as an answer to who God is? Does the world see you as somebody who's different? Do you act differently? If you don't, then in what ways should you? Like I said, you don't have to go and give a big, long defense. You don't have to tell your employer or someone, well, I'm not going to cheat this way because I think this. Just stop doing it. 
You don't have to go and say, well, I'm not going to lie anymore because lying's a sin. Just stop lying. On and on and on. Now, again, if the Lord leads you to give a defense in that way, then by all means, yes, that is a, a great witness to have. But I think sometimes we feel like, well, if I can't defend it logically or with words, maybe I don't speak well, then I'm just going to kind of go along. No. Live your life the way that God would have you. The other question to this, can you give an answer if needed? I've said this multiple times. Can you explain why abortion is wrong? Can you? Can you explain salvation? Can you explain the difference between church membership and getting saved? Can you explain why Christ died and who he is? That he is fully God and fully man? Can you explain how sin came into the world and uh, drove us apart from God because we chose to engage in these things and continue to engage in sin, which means that God, being holy and perfect, can have nothing to do with us who are sinners, whether it's a big sin in our mind or a little tiny sin. It doesn't make a difference. Can you explain these things? Or do you just say, well, my church believes this? Or one that I don't really like, my pastor says, fill in the blank. Or sometimes you'll say, not you necessarily, I hope, but you'll say, well, my Bible, in air quotes, says X. When, you know, a lot of times when I hear people say that, they have, I don't think they've ever read their Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Well, my Bible says we should all love each other. <laughs> okay. Yes, it does. But the Bible also says we should correct people too. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. But the point is, we get lazy, and instead of actually being able to defend the things that we should, especially for those of us who are more mature Christians, we simply rely, well, my church says this, or my pastor says this, or my granddad says this, or my version of how I read the Bible says X. We get lazy. I don't think that's appropriate. We should know our first principles. We should know who Jesus Christ is. We should know why he died. We should know what that did. We should know that he rose again on the third day, conquering death and paying the penalty of my sin and your sin. You don't have to know a bunch of fancy words. You don't have to be completely correct on your eschatology or know about dispensationalism or tell me the difference between Arminianism and Calvin and so on and so forth. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you want to get into those subjects, by all means, I encourage you to go deep into God's word. But you must understand to be able to share the very basic principles of what it is that you believe. There's a lost and dying world who's waiting to hear those things. We must understand sin and salvation the list could go on, but we must understand these first principles that are bedrock into who and what we believe. As an example, 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We must know these basic truths. We must live them and we must be able to articulate them to some degree based on how long we've been saved. We go back and read this again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason. I'll pause there again. 
You might, might be a better translation, or even your translation might say, that demands an account. This is both the idea of someone who is in authority who says to you, why are you doing the things that you want to do? Paul had to do this numerous times. Peter had to do this. Many of the early apostles and disciples were called before authority, and they were saying, why are you preaching this man's name? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? So there might be times and days when someone who was in authority says, why are you doing this? Or hopefully they're saying, why are you not doing this? When maybe someone who's in charge of you tells you to do something you shouldn't. So there may be times when there is an authority person who is asking or demanding an account of why you're doing this, but it also has to do with people who are just kind of curious. I hope that you have experienced living a life close enough to God that people ask you questions. I had a man ask me one day. I think he was actually serious. He said, so you're one of those Christians, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, how often do you beat your wife? I, I, mean, he, I think he really, I was kind of poking at me, but he was actually interested. Can you give an answer? People are surprising, and they surprisingly want to know why you're different. It's very interesting. And even if they don't always directly ask or don't connect the fact that you're a believer, I hope that they see something a little bit different in you. And they'll want to know the answer. Why don't you swear? Why don't you drink? Why don't you cheat? Why don't you sleep around? Why don't you steal? Why don't you do everything that everybody else does in society? Why is it that you're different? Is it because you think you're better? Are you ready to answer that question? I hope so. Why are you so nice? Why are you so helpful? Why do you care about me? You ever had somebody ask you that question? Numerous times I've had people ask me that. Why do you care about me? Usually it's somebody, a student. I've never had anybody really care for him. Are you ready to give an answer? Because here's the thing, your answer can't just be, well, I'm just a nice person. Because if you're a believer, that's not the answer. The answer for why you're so nice is because of Jesus Christ, right? The answer for why you're kind and gentle and patient is what? Is Jesus Christ. And some of you can give a testimony. See, I'm merging these things together. Say, I used to be that way. But God changed me, and I am now. Some of you can say, well, I've always been fairly nice and patient and kind, but when I met the Lord, I understood the difference and the reason and the purpose. Brothers and sisters, we should be ready to give the reason to anyone who asks whether we are not doing something or are engaged in something and not just pass it off. You know what? Because here, here's where it's, I'll be honest, it's challenging for me. I really struggle with this. Somebody will ask me a question that's a complimentary question. How do you do this? Why do you do this? And I want to pass it off as nothing. Or wear it as some kind of badge of honor. That's not to be the way it is. In fact, we are always to point back to Christ, the one who is in our hearts, remember, the one who we are sanctifying in our hearts. The answer must always point to him. And what's the ultimate answer? Ask your reason for the hope that is within you. You see, no one's generally going to walk up to you and say, how do you have so much hope? 
Right? That's not what they're asking when they want to know why you're nice or kind or why you don't do certain things. But ultimately, we know as believers that the answer is what? That we have a hope in Jesus Christ. Not a hope as an earthly hope as in I hope I get a Christmas present or something like that. But a confident hope, an assurance that Jesus Christ saved me. And at some point, I will either go to meet him or he will come back to get me. And I will have an eternal reward in heaven, not based on my works, but because of his sacrifice for me. That is the hope that I have. That is what should drive us every moment of the day. And that hope in a loving Savior is what encourages us to do His good will. And so let us not neglect to mention the hope. It's wrong if I just say, well, I'm just naturally a good person. That's why I'm so nice. Because I'm not a naturally good person. It is Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the hope that is within me. Is that hope inside of you? That's what our salvation is based off of. Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, I can't sit here and argue and prove to you that anything of this book is true. I believe it's true. That's my hope. That's my testimony to you today. I'm telling you, I'm holding fast to the confession of my hope in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do all of this? Well, it says we do it with meekness and with fear. Now, meekness is a word that's really fallen out of, out of fashion. Again, just like many of the words we've talked about today, the original intention of the word is not really how we think about it today. I turn to my favorite dictionary, good old Noah Webster, 1828, good believing, God-fearing man who wrote that version of the dictionary. He says, uh, meekness is mild temper, soft, gentle, not easily provoked or irritated. So when it says that we are to give an answer with meekness, we're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to be show-offs. It's not supposed to be about me and self-exaltation. It's not to be threatening. It's not to be defiant. It's not to be in self-confidence. Instead, our answer of the hope that is in Jesus Christ should be with meekness and fear. That means that we are to come mild, soft, gentle, not provoked. Does it mean we never raise our voice? Well, probably not. Does it mean we don't out and out and tell people that they're wrong? Listen, there is a real, <laughs> a real challenge we have in our society today because we're afraid to tell people they're wrong. Some of you who've lived a few years longer than me, have you noticed this as, as, as a, is this a rising trend, right? It sure seems to be. And it seems to affect all of us. We'd be afraid to tell a small child they're doing something wrong because their parent might not agree with us. What kind of foolishness is that? We're afraid to call someone out and say, no, that's a sin and you are wrong. Think Jesus Christ never did that? Over and over and over again. And what was almost always his commandment that followed that? Don't do it anymore. We as a society, and specifically as Christian believers, have given in to what our society is telling us. And instead of being meek with fear, telling someone, listen, what you're doing is not right. We're, you know, we're just following with everybody else and say, well, if it's okay for you, it's okay for me, I guess. Listen, this is a tragedy. 
We are to stand firm in the truth that God has presented to us. And that means that we are to call sin out for what it is according to the scripture, not as we want to interpret it today loosely, but the way it was written and the way it was intended. So much of what we let pass, even as Christians today, wouldn't have gone over 20 or 30 years ago. Is that because we're just so much more enlightened now, two or 3,000 years later? No, it's because we're weak. Because we are not prepared to call sin out for what it is. We're not prepared to call goodness out for what it is. And you know why I think a lot of this is? Because we feel like we don't really deserve to call somebody out because maybe we do some of the same things. God have mercy on us. That's a real problem, isn't it? That tells us two things. One, we need to start sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts so that we live right. And two, that we need to have the courage, not fear in the fear that you're thinking about it now, the courage to stand up and when called upon to tell somebody, no, this is wrong. We don't behave this way. We don't live this way. This is wrong. This is not an interpretation of scripture that is correct. But do it with love and the fear of God. Brothers and sisters, we are called upon, those of us who know the Lord, to engage with the world. I talked last week, last Sunday, about being an ambassador, going out and doing what God wants us to do. And I'm reminding us today, again, so this is like the third week in a row. So if you've been here three times, clearly God is telling you something. (laughs) We are called upon to live a life that God commands. He will change us from the inside out, and He will leave us here to fulfill his will. He could do it without us, but he wants to use us. He wants us to love him and to love each other. He wants us to sanctify him in our hearts, to be ready to give an answer, ready to give the answer when anyone asks for a reason for the hope that lives inside of you. And so my challenge for all of us today is to ask yourself this question, are you ready to give an answer? Are you ready to live a life that demonstrates what you believe? Are you ready, those who are older in your faith, to give a more detailed answer? Or is the answer you'd give today the same one you'd have given 10 years ago? That's not growth. I think there's a lot of truth in the idea that you're either growing or you're dying. And so, brothers and sisters who know the Lord, may you be encouraged to grow so that you're ready to give an answer, a defense about the hope that is within you.